One, two, two three. three. Hello. <laughs> I thought I'd switch it up that time. Oh, wow. You threw me I off. I said hi instead of hello. I know. I, we, well, you know, we need to start challenging our routines here. Oh, it's going to be a long one. We need to reinvent <laughs> life right now. And I'm starting with this podcast. <laughs> I'm Howard Dory. This is Jessica Dory, the other half. The better half. And I don't know about that. Welcome to the season two finale of Plotting Through the Presidents. I can't believe we're in the finale. Can I tell you I'm saddened, but also a little relieved? Like, you are up nights. I miss my husband. I'm excited for a break. But I'm, I'm so thankful that we were able to do this. Yeah. I'm so grateful that we had this together this time around, especially during COVID, where everyone seems isolated. And this season, I mean, it flew by in some ways. I don't and know. And the year flew by well, in the some year, ways. The, because we're in this like horrible time Well, war, time has no meaning. It's, it's like being in the newborn stage. For those of you who may have kids, you know that newborn stage where you're just like walking around in the middle of the night and you have no yeah. idea if you're in a different dimension or what. <laughs> That's what it's been feeling like. We're in a major time warp. Now, this whole season has had a good bit of death and destruction. Yeah, that's how we like to roll. Well, this episode is the culmination of that, because today we're digging into the story of the explosion aboard the USS Princeton. Wow. The single deadliest incident to befall an American presidential cabinet. Oh, my goodness. We're going to look at the butterfly effects and the hubris and the greed that contributed to it. Oh, hubris. And how it affected President John Tyler's insatiable lust for two things. A country called Texas <laughs> and a woman named Julia. Oh, Julia. A lot of this information, by the way, comes from the great book Explosion on the Potomac by Carrie Walters. Thank you, Carrie Walters. Yeah. I'm sure my husband had your book open in the midnight hour. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Researching. <laughs> Before we get to the details of the disaster... We're going to dive into four of the key people on board that day and how they got there. Okay. Number one, President John Tyler. Number two, his Secretary of State. Number three, Captain Robert Stockton. And number four, Julia Gardner, the Rose of Long Island. Wow. Well, I just hope this captain, like, went down with the ship instead of, like, a boarding ship like some asshole captains, but... You've got some baggage with captains? <laughs> I just remember that cruise ship that toppled over and oh, he yeah, made sure yeah. to get off. <laughs> this is a little bit different. Okay, good. And then we're going to get into the disaster itself and its aftermath and impact on American history. Are you ready? I'm so ready. Bring it on. All right. First, let's talk about John Tyler and his batshit crazy presidency. Like if you asked me to name the presidents, I don't think I would even consider naming Tyler. Most people wouldn't. I have no idea who the hell he is. No. <laughs> so you're going to have to break this down for me. Do you remember in the movie Clerks how the character Dante kept saying, I wasn't even supposed to be here today? Yes. <laughs> well, that reminds me of John Tyler. He wasn't even supposed to be president. What happened? Not that he didn't want it. Why was he there then? Everything about him breaks all the rules. All of them. And you know what happens when you break the rules? You go to detention? People get hurt. Okay. So let me paint for you a picture of John Tyler, the politician. So John Tyler was everything you wanted in Virginia aristocracy. Charming, suave, good-mannered, tall, devoted husband and father, and plenty of slaves. Ugh. Yeah. I have so many words. I don't want to take up the whole time with my words. So I'm just, yeah. So he was fine with slavery. Oh, yeah. He also had principles. 
I mean, his moral compass was shit, but he had principles that he liked to make a big show of sticking to, and that helped him make a name for himself in politics. He started out as a Democrat, like Andrew Jackson, but he became an outspoken opponent of Jackson over states' rights and executive power, and that got him a membership in the anti-Jacksonian Whig Party. Mm-hmm. You ready for some Whig history? I am. I know the term Whig. Again, here I am exposing my ignorance You're about not, history. No, these are not things that are common knowledge well, for anyone. Well, I remember learning about the Whig Party. I'm sorry that happened to you. I, me too. But apparently it wasn't traumatic enough to stick because I don't remember much about the Whig that, Party. That is okay. Okay. Thank you for exonerating my <laughs> guilt. <laughs> the Whig Party, they did have an actual platform that supported federal spending on infrastructure and a national bank, but that wasn't enough to defeat the Jacksonians. To win elections, they had to build a big coalition of people with different beliefs because the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Sort of. I don't know if I go by that, actually. (laughs) (laughs) It's not the best thing to go by, and we'll see why. Somehow, John Tyler ended up as the vice presidential nominee on a ticket with William Henry Harrison, who was a real Whig. They thought that Tyler would help them win the South, and they didn't ask too many questions about what he actually believed and whether that jived with the party. Ooh. Yeah. That sounds a lot like the Sarah Palin situation. But, like, she's a woman. Let's get her on the ticket. And then they're like, whoa, she's dumb. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, they purposely chose not to vet too much. In fact, they told him to keep his pretty little mouth shut because the less the voters knew about him, the better. Oh, that's that's lovely. Lying by omission. (laughs) Their plan worked. Apparently. And William Henry Harrison won the election of 1840, defeating incumbent Martin Van Buren. Hmm. But then... What? The night soil crept in. Oh, no. Did it poison everybody again? (laughs) There was no sewer system in D.C. then, so human waste, or night soil, it was carted each night to a field seven blocks upstream of the White House's water supply. Oh, my gosh. Well, first of all, I do not want that job. No. That's a really rough job. Yeah. Second of all, did they not understand how bacteria worked? <laughs> not, not exactly. And, and water. It seems like a lack of understanding. Yeah. It was a breeding ground for bacteria that caused typhoid fever. Ugh, gross. By the way, in our um, Died on the Fourth of July episode, you asked, why did no one else die from this poison water? Yeah. Well, the thing is, plenty of people did get sick from it. James K. Polk, the 11th president, and Zachary Taylor, the 12th president, They both had severe gastroenteritis in the White House. Mm -hmm. Taylor actually died from it, and Polk died just a few months after leaving office. But the first president who died in office was William Henry Harrison. And that meant that John Tyler would be the president. Wow. Or maybe just the acting president. Nobody knew for sure what was supposed to happen because the Constitution wasn't super clear about this. Right. Thanks, Governor Morris. Still not super clear about some things. Yeah, we're still working some stuff out for sure. There's still a few uh, questions. The Constitution said that if the president died, the powers and duties of the president should devolve on the vice president. But did that actually make them the president? John Tyler decided it totally did, and he made everybody else believe it too. Some people sent him mail addressed to the acting president at the White House, probably just to piss him off, and he returned it. It's like, I'm sorry, there's no such acting president at this address. (laughs) So John Tyler was 51 when he and his wife, Letitia, moved into the White House. They'd been married for 27 years, and they had eight children together. That's far too many. It's a lot. We only have one surviving love letter between John and Letitia, and that was written before their wedding. He Mm -hmm. wrote, 
Whether I float or sink in the stream of fortune, you may be assured of this, that I shall never cease to love you. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. When Letitia moved into the White House, her health was already bad. She'd had a paralytic stroke that left her unable to care for herself. She stayed upstairs in her bedroom in the White House. She only came down once to witness her daughter's wedding. Oh, my gosh. And she died of a stroke just two years into Tyler's presidency. Oh, gosh. So John Tyler's personal life was depressing. That is depressing. And his work life was catastrophic. Talk about stress. You know, we need to remind ourselves that, you know, staying at home, juggling the children and the Zooms and... It could be a lot worse. It could be worse. (laughs) It was mostly a catastrophe because he completely disagreed with most of his cabinet and his party and the leader and founder of the Whig Party, Henry Clay. It turned out that making someone your vice president who disagrees with everything you stand for is not a great idea. Yeah. Just like you shouldn't marry someone where you totally disagree. Yeah. In one month, the Whig-controlled Congress passed two bills focused on a national bank. John Tyler vetoed both of them because Mr. State's rights didn't believe in a national bank. Oh, wow. The Whigs wigged out. Yeah. There were demonstrations outside the White House with angry mobs burning his effigies and throwing stones at the house. Wow. It was so dangerous that Tyler had to form a presidential police force, which was an early version of the Secret Service. They expelled him from the Whig party, making him officially a president without a party. That's the first time that's ever happened, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, Washington technically wasn't a member of a party, but even though he was a federalist. Be- but that's because there were no parties yet. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's the first time anything like that has happened. Can you imagine today if a party had the balls to say, you're so far outside of what we stand for that we're expelling you? I mean, I kind of wish that had happened. I mean, <laughs> it's unimaginable. Well, apparently. Yeah. I don't know what Tyler stood for, but it's kind of cool that his party was like, I'm sorry, you're a little bit out of our our bubble. <laughs> you're not in the circle of trust anymore. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And you need to be expelled. Every single member of Tyler's cabinet resigned in protest, except one, his Secretary of State, Daniel Webster. Oh, Webster. Yeah. We talked about how a bunch of Andrew Jackson's cabinet resigned over the petticoat affair last season. Yeah. This was even worse. And if we learn nothing else in this episode, it should be that John Tyler was really bad at keeping cabinet members. So not working well with others or just had unpopular opinions? Um, everything. All of the above? All of the above and more. Okay. Are we getting to all of the above and more? Oh, yeah. Okay. Through all this turmoil, he was almost the first president to be impeached. In 1842, a House committee led by John Quincy Adams mm-hmm. investigated whether he committed impeachable offenses. They concluded that he totally deserved to be impeached, but they didn't actually recommend impeaching him, so it didn't go anywhere. I don't understand the difference between deserving and recommending, but... They're like, you know what? You uh, you deserve this. You really this. deserve this, but we're not going to do we're anything. We're not going to... For political reasons, we're not quite uh, ready I see, yet. for political reasons. Yeah. Okay, that makes more sense. So as president, he couldn't really accomplish anything, at least not domestically. His one hope and the one thing that became his single obsession after his wife died was Texas. He made it his top priority to annex Texas for the United States. That would secure his legacy and be his gift to the people of the U.S. At this point, Texas had already fought and won its independence from Mexico, and it was its own country. I mean, Mexico didn't really agree with that, and that caused some friction. Right. It, but Texas was considered its own country at this yes, point? Yes, it was that the Republic of so, Texas. That is so interesting. It makes <laughs> it a lot so, of sense. It does make a lot of sense, even today. But Texans made it known that they were DTBA. 
down to be annexed. <laughs> but this was a Pandora's box that Tyler wanted to open. It was an extremely tricky proposition because of slavery. You see, half the states at that time allowed slavery, and the other half didn't. And that meant that the balance of power in the Senate was 50-50, which was really the best thing for everyone, unless you happen to be enslaved. The Republic of Texas allowed slavery, so if you let it into the U.S. and it became a state, then the balance of the Senate would go to supporters of slavery. Mm. So to pull off getting two-thirds of the Senate to approve a treaty annexing Texas without kickstarting a war with Mexico and a civil war, Tyler would need one hell of a Secretary of State. And that brings us to the second person aboard the Princeton that day. The Secretary, Secretary of State. State. Mm-hmm. One of the people who lost their lives aboard the Princeton was Tyler's Secretary of State. And I said earlier that every single member of his cabinet had resigned, except for Daniel Webster, the Secretary of State. But Daniel Webster did not die aboard the Princeton. No. He stuck with Tyler for a while, and they disagreed about Texas, and Tyler asked Webster to resign so he could get someone in there who wanted Texas just as much as he did. Wow. So that saved Webster's life, it sounds like. Yeah. So Tyler appointed his current attorney general, Hugh S. Legere, to be his acting secretary of state. It was Hugh S. Legere who died, but not aboard the Princeton. What? No. I'm so confused. Legere died just a couple months after becoming Tyler's secretary of state. We think of a burst appendix. Oh, wow. Remember yeah. when you thought my appendix burst and you called 911? And you just had gas. <laughs> yeah, yes. it was just gas will put you in the emergency room, apparently. It made you faint. It was bad. Okay. <laughs> now I'm suddenly embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> don't be, don't be. So if you were part of Tyler's cabinet, there was very little job security or life security. After Legere died, Tyler chose to promote his secretary of the Navy. At the end of his game of musical deck chairs, he ended up with a secretary of state named Abel Upshur. Upshur was up for annexing Texas, for sure. Mm-hmm. Upshur was the same age as Tyler, and they were both highfalutin Virginians who defended slavery as a state's rights issue. But Upshur went even further. He was vocally a big fan of slavery. One of the reasons he liked it was because it made poor white people feel good about themselves. Oh my God, that's so disgusting. However, is, is this the man that died on the Princeton? Yes. I'm sorry, but good riddance. <laughs> he said, however poor or ignorant or miserable he may be, a free white man has yet the consoling consciousness that there is a still lower condition to which he can never be reduced. Did he not self-reflect at all and see like how that makes him you know, an absolute monster? I, I don't think so. To think that way? Oh, my God. He must have self-reflected a little bit because he knew when to play that down. Upshur wanted the U.S. to acquire Texas and maybe even eventually Mexico and even South America. Uh, he wanted them as slaveholding territories where both enslaved blacks and free blacks could move there so whites on the East Coast wouldn't have to deal with them anymore. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm just... Upshur had done a lot as Secretary of the Navy to fix a lot of the Navy's problems. He made it easier for officers to be promoted based on merit and not just seniority. He worked on increasing their pay. It was his idea to establish a Judge Advocate General Office for the Navy to investigate and try cases. So he basically created the show JAG. <laughs> I don't know what JAG is. A lot of people don't, but a lot, so many people do. Hopefully our listeners do for your sake. <laughs> I don't know what the Venn diagram on that is. Um, <laughs> so but if you're a big fan of the show JAG. If you're a big fan of the show JAG, please send in a Venn diagram. <laughs> showing what you're a fan of. <laughs> and what you're not a fan of yeah. and what you know. <laughs> Upshur was an effective politician and Tyler needed that kind of effectiveness to get Texas. 
Upshur tried to appeal to northern senators by playing up that the U.S. might also get the Oregon Territory someday, and that would be a free state, so they'd balance each other out. Harmony! (laughs) He also anonymously wrote a bunch of newspaper articles that falsely claimed that Britain was trying to form an allegiance with Texas, and if the U.S. didn't annex Texas, then it might become a part of Britain. He knew that you had to play up why annexing Texas would be a good thing, downplay the controversial aspects, and scare people into action. Politics is is so much based on fear-mongering. Oh, At totally. least successful politics, it seems like fear-mongering plays a big role. Yeah. Upshur also worked behind the scenes with Tyler and Sam Houston, the president of Texas. They secretly promised that the U.S. would defend Texas if Mexico started the war over it. Now, declaring war is not within the power of the president, or it's not supposed to be, so there was some shady stuff going on here to get Texas. Hmm. And thank God we did. We have a lot of listeners in Texas. (laughs) How dare you? Oh, oh, sorry. You'll have to cut those parts out. I will. Upshur also knew that if the U.S. were to fight with Mexico, it would help to have a powerful navy. But it would be even better if we could convince Mexico that our navy was so strong that there was no chance of winning against the U.S., then maybe we could avoid war altogether. One way to do that would be to showcase the newest, most powerful warship in the Navy's arsenal, the USS Princeton. Abel Upshur made sure that the Mexican ambassador to the U.S., General Juan Almonte, was on the invitation list to a pleasure cruise on the Princeton to witness its power and glory. Okay, so we're showcasing and showing off our Navy. Yes, to the Mexican ambassador. I see. Our third player today is the captain of the Princeton and the wild man who got it commissioned in the first place, Robert Stockton. It's a nice name. Yeah. Hopefully he's a good guy. Some people will stop at nothing to get glory and fame. Robert Stockton was one of those people. Okay. Here's a picture of the mustachioed Stockton. That's a big mustache. Yeah, he was another rich dude from an important family, but he wasn't Southern. He was from New Jersey. Okay, that mustache goes all across his cheeks, as they do. It probably goes down his back, I imagine. It's it's probably around his legs, like a Swiss seat. He could ride that thing down a zip line. so gross. (laughs) He always wanted to be in the Navy. He was a midshipman in the War of 1812 and a first lieutenant after that and part of the Barbary Wars. He liked the thrill of the fight. He'd fought in at least three duels. His brother was even killed in one, which left Robert all the family money. So now you've got a guy who wants nothing more than glory and fame and loves fighting, and you've given him a ton of money to finance his dreams. Oh, goodness. What could go wrong? Yeah, sounds like a perfect storm. People started to complain. When he was commanding the USS Alligator, Stockton threatened an African king and coerced him into selling the land that is now present-day Liberia, where we shipped thousands of free slaves. Its capital, Monrovia, is named after James Monroe. That's... I had no idea. Spain complained that Stockton was too swashbuckly in his pursuit of the Pirates of the Caribbean, and he was reassigned to work on land. He took a furlough, really a 10-year break, and he invested a bunch of money in railroads and canals, and he made even more money. Most people were devastated by the Panic of 1837, which was the worst depression until the Great Depression, Mm -hmm. but he did okay. He went to England, and he witnessed some pretty cool steamboat technology. Instead of those big steamboat paddle wheels on the side, he found this guy, John Erickson, that had developed a subaquatic propeller that made steamboats faster and less clunky. And Stockton thought, 
I'm going to get some of these and transform the U.S. Navy, and then they'll put me in charge of it. Oh my goodness. He's got some dreams. He does. But the president at the time, Martin Van Buren, didn't think we needed much of a Navy at all. And the Navy secretary hated steamboats and didn't want to turn the Navy into a fleet of sea monsters. (laughs) But then John Tyler became president, and he was all about building up a big modern Navy. Were there lots of threats at this point? Like, there was there was England, there was France, and okay. yeah. There were threats. Yeah, definitely. To build up a navy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Stockton's proof of what the future of the navy could be was the USS Princeton, his pride and joy. It was the ultimate show of naval power. Stockton named it after the town of Princeton in his beloved New Jersey. Stockton said that with this ship, the ocean may become a neutral ground and the rights of the smallest as well as the greatest nations may once more be respected. Wow. This was going to transform everything. Yeah, supposedly. It was technologically superior to anything up till then. It still had sails, uh, but it was steam-powered with a propeller underwater. That meant that it was harder to take out its power with cannons, and its smokestack could be lowered like a retractable telescope when it was moving. (sighs) Is any of this technology we use today, did any of this last? Eventually, yeah. This okay. this really did make a difference. Okay. He didn't design this technology himself. It was this right. guy, Erickson, but he took advantage of it. Okay. So when it retracted its smokestack, it looked like just a regular slow sailing ship. But surprise, it was actually a steam-powered death machine. It's like a transformer. Yeah. All of these improvements made it quiet and smokeless like a big floating Prius with guns. <laughs> Stockton sank a ton of his own money into promoting the Princeton, knowing that it would all be worth it because it was his ticket to military glory and international conquest. Now I want to talk a little bit about what made the Princeton a warship. Okay. In addition to a bunch of smaller guns, there were two big-ass cannons on the ship. One was originally called the Orator because when it spoke, everyone would listen. (laughs) What does that mean? Yeah. It was renamed the Oregon to let everyone know that we wanted to take the Oregon Territory. I can kind of imagine the meeting where some non-creative executive was like, orator, orator. Um, hey, let's change it to something similar sounding, but totally different that ruins the joke. <laughs> the other cannon was called the Peacemaker. Oh, wow. So this is some conflicting, <laughs> some conflicting names. Oh, yeah. They, they had fun with their names. I would never name a weapon the peacemaker. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do you make peace? With war, obviously. (laughs) There you go. The orator was tested hundreds of times by Erickson, and he made improvements when he noticed tension cracks. He added metal bands around the cannon and had them shrunk onto it to reinforce it. But the peacemaker was not part of Erickson's original design at all. It was all Stockton's idea. He wanted to add something that he could take 100% of the credit for. So he commissioned it at his own expense with his big, deep pockets. And that's where the problems began. With the Peacemaker. Yeah. Instead of using British iron like Erickson had used, Stockton had the Peacemaker made from American iron. And he designed it to be even bigger than the Oregon, the biggest cannon ever made. It was 15 feet in length. Oh, my gosh. The largest mass of steel ever forged. That must be like the whole ship. <laughs> it, 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 yeah, you see pictures of it, and it took up like the whole width of the ship, basically. Oh my gosh. It weighed 13 tons, and its cannonballs were 225 pounds. What the? I don't have uh, a lot of experience with cannonballs, so I kind of picture bowling balls. <laughs> and that's a big-ass bowling ball. 
It turns out that the average cannonball is actually a bit bigger than a bowling ball. It's maybe as heavy as 60 pounds. But this is something four times that size. How do they even load it? It sounds so impractical. Yeah. Worse yet, the Peacemaker was built quickly and without the shrunken stress band reinforcements that Erickson had added to the organ. That made Erickson nervous. He said that Stockton lacks the sufficient knowledge for the construction of a common wheelbarrow. (laughs) So how the hell was he supposed to design a cannon? Right. Stockton scoffed at that and said, The Peacemaker is quite perfect, and I do not think that any charge of powder can injure it. And as a piece of forged work, it is certainly the greatest achievement up to this time. Lord. Yeah, Stockton poured a ton of money into throwing a few demonstrations of the Princeton and the Peacemaker, and they were extremely successful. He was gaining fame for being responsible for the world's fastest ship and the world's largest, most powerful cannon. And he was captain of the ship on February 28, 1844, when it was ready to set sail on the Potomac, with somewhere between 300 and 400 passengers. It's a little bit like a Titanic story. I mean, just like rushing certain things and being complacent about safety. Yeah. yeah, A lot of parallels. Yeah. Including a rose. Oh, really? Um, Some of the passengers included David Gardner, a New York state senator and lawyer, and his two daughters, Margaret and Julia. Mm -hmm. That brings us to the fourth and final key player we're going to talk about today. Julia Gardner, the Rose of Long Island. Oh, wow. Julia Gardner was born in 1820 on her family's private island known as Gardner's Island. Not a fan? I don't know. I mean, maybe if I had the money to buy my own private island, it just I just immediately go to Jeffrey Epstein in my head. Oh, okay. It's like nothing nothing good goes on on private islands. <laughs> All right. Um, this was off Long Island in New York. Her father, David Gardner, was a New York state senator and a lawyer, just generally a big deal in the local scene. Julia was trained to be a fine, high society lady, and she spent three years at an elite finishing school, Madame Chagaret's Institute. <laughs> Sorry, that name. Right. It's kind of funny. She was apparently irresistibly beautiful. One biographer said that all she had to do was look at a man over her fan, and the chemical reaction started. <laughs> Those pheromones. Yeah, I don't know if that means like dopamine and serotonin <laughs> rushing together to create the euphoric feeling of love at first sight. Interesting. Or maybe just a boner. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm kind of curious to see her face just because I find that um, our standards of beauty and their standards of beauty back then were so different that I'm, I'm curious just to see what they thought was beautiful. Here's a picture of her, a photograph from when she was a little bit older. Okay. I mean, yeah, she's very pretty. Yeah. By all accounts, she was. She went to her first formal dance when she was 15, and she wrote about it in a letter. She wrote, I presume you would like to know how I was dressed. I will begin. (laughs) Pearl earrings, your buckle, and a beautiful bouquet of flowers in my bosom. Uh, Who did she write this to? Uh, Maybe her mother or sister. (laughs) I don't know. Sounds like it, yeah. It was beautiful. None in the room could compare with mine. Wow, she knew she was beautiful, too. Yeah, she was gorgeous, and her boobs were a garden. <laughs> one, could, one could only aspire. Um, but alas, poor rich Julia was bored. To pass the time, she learned to play the guitar, and she looked forward to the sweet escape of sleep, saying, I generally hail the approach of night, as in the land of dreams, I can at least experience variety. That does sound like some boredom. Yeah, I mean, I I love some sleep too, though. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I, I look that. forward to sleeping. So she decided to shake things up by posing for an artist. Okay, is it like Jack and painting one of his 
French girls or whatever. Are you asking if it's nude? Yes, I'm asking, is it a nude drawing? No, it is fully clothed. Okay. Lots of clothes, in fact, even a fur coat. Oh my goodness. She posed for, and this is pretty scandalous. Are you ready? Yeah. An advertisement for a mid-level department store. <laughs> okay. It's Why true. is that scandalous? Oh. Her likeness was included in a drawing where she's arm in arm with an older man in the top hat, and she's holding a handbag with the words, I'll purchase at Bogart and Meckhamley's, number 86 9th Avenue. Their goods are beautiful and astonishingly cheap. Okay. The caption clearly identifies her not by name, but as the Rose the of Rose. Long Island. Okay. Now, this is what passed for a scandal back then. Nowadays, you have to make a sex tape, get a reality show, and then you become a style icon. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of work. <laughs> things were so much easier back then. Her parents, as you can imagine, were mortified. Why? <laughs> because this was maybe the first time a real society woman had appeared in any kind of commercial endorsement. Wow. It just wasn't done back then. I see. So almost like a working woman. Yeah. And it was it was not like the top tier department store either. I mean, this is like, you know, JCPenney or something. <laughs> Her father, David Gardner, was like, we might need to take the family to Europe until this blows over. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Then a poem appeared on the front page of a newspaper that was all about the author's love for the Rose of Long Island. Mm. And it had lines like this. When gallants buzz like bees around, whose sweets from flowers suck. Where shall the man so vain be found as hopes this rose to pluck? Wow. Sounds a little aggressive. Yeah. Her father decided we are definitely taking the family to Europe <laughs> before they start rhyming more stuff with pluck. There's just too much heat on us. Too much heat. I can't believe they felt like they had to move because she did an advertisement. Yeah. A completely clothed drawing. I know. It was a different time. So they went to Europe to get some culture. And because they were rich and well-connected, they got to meet the Pope. Oh, hail the Pope. They witnessed the Pope washing the feet of poor priests, recreating a scene from the Bible where Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. And Julia's sister Margaret was basically like, this is fucking gross. <laughs> she said it was a disgusting act of humility to see that someone actually washed and kissed the feet of the filthy, miserable people. Wow. I, I don't know what to say. Yeah. That's really... Who are, who are their parents? I don't know, but she... <laughs> There's some parenting fails going on. They definitely on. learned the wrong lesson from this demonstration. <laughs> right. They weren't taking away the right takeaways. <laughs> no, and that continues. In France, they got to visit the king of France and see his royal court with all its pomp and circumstance and etiquette. And Julia was like, this is more like it. <laughs> she put all those images in her memory palace so that she could pull them out if ever she became, say, the top lady in her country. Oh, my goodness. All across Europe, Julia Gardner apparently drew men in like a magnet. <laughs> she was like a young, female, two-legged Governor Morris. That's pr I'm pretty sure that's how people refer to her. Yeah. Governora. Yeah, the Governoress. Gava. <laughs> Gavinia. Gavinia. When her family returned to the States and visited D.C., Julia flirted with two of the president's sons, both of whom were married, um, although one was on the way to a divorce. That one, John Tyler Jr., she said, laid quite a siege to my heart. He wrote her poetry. Oh. Bad poetry. I'm sure. But she said, I excuse all bad poetry where <laughs> I am the subject. <laughs> these, these women. <laughs> when the recently widowed President John Tyler met her, he too was immediately smitten. He was just a widow for five months at that point. So he had to kind of act delicately while in mourning. How long did they mourn? 
I mean, you're supposed to mourn for at least a year and maybe more. There. Okay. Yeah. He invited the family over to the White House often, and he made lots of excuses to see Julia. And then one night during a Washington's birthday masquerade ball at the White House, he took things a step further. He plucked a rose from her bosom? <laughs> With his teeth, no. <laughs> he took Julia aside and asked her to marry him. Oh, that that's a bit of a step forward. I was thinking, like, asked her to dance. <laughs> oh, no. They were already dancing. He went all the steps forward. <laughs> I'll let her tell the rest of the story in her own words. Okay. I had never thought of love, so I said, no, 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 and shook my head with each word, which flung the tassel of my Greek cap into his face with every move. It was undignified, <laughs> but it amused me very much to see his expression as he tried to make love to me and the tassel brushed his face. <laughs> that is hilarious. I know. I, like, I, can't, I don't even know what to say. This is just way too melodramatic. So she kept hitting him in the face with her head tassel yes. while they had sex? <laughs> I don't think they were actually making love. I think that was just a While they words. were dancing or talking? While she he was proposing. <laughs> She kept hitting him. I can't. Sorry. I can't help but picture like Miss Piggy, like flailing about. <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. like Miss Piggy. <laughs> oh, Julia, I must have you. Mm, no, 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 Mr. President. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was really disturbing and hilarious. <laughs> I've never heard you talk like Miss Piggy with such accuracy. I've never had an occasion. <laughs> That was that was a new side of you I've not seen. Well, things are about to change. <laughs> I see that. You've always been a fan of the Muppets, though. I love the Muppets. And yeah, Julia Tyler uh, refusing John Tyler's proposal just reminds me of, of just Miss Piggy. <laughs> That's great. Julia didn't tell her father. She said that she was his pet, but feared that he would blame her for allowing the president to have reached the proposing point. So I did not speak of it to anyone. She must have felt like her father maybe wouldn't have approved, and her father may have been the one thing preventing John Tyler from getting what he wanted. Over the next year, she and Tyler did seem to agree to get married, but no date was set. It's not clear if her father was still preventing things from going forward or if she was in no rush. But that would change on February 28th in 1844, when Julia and her sister and their father stepped aboard the, the Princeton. Princeton. Now on to the disaster. Okay. I don't know if this was a bad omen, but instead of being christened with a bottle of champagne, the Princeton was christened with a bottle of American whiskey. Maybe that tells you all you need to know. The Princeton's voyage on February 28th was set to be a social event for the ages. Stockton's other cruises on the Princeton had created a lot of buzz, which is exactly what he wanted. So this cruise was a hot ticket. And as always, Stockton dished out money to make sure the ship was stocked with the best food and drinks you could get. The below deck area, or the, the underbelly, I, I'm not a sailor. The galley? Sure. It was designed so that the walls were removable, so the whole thing could be opened up like a great big floating banquet hall. Wow. We already know some of the people on board. Captain right. Robert Stockton, President John Tyler, mm -hmm. the gardeners, Secretary of State Abel Upshur, Mexican Ambassador General Juan Almonte, mm -hmm. lots of other bigwigs, including 75-year-old party monster, <laughs> Dolly Madison. Oh, wow. John Quincy Adams and his family had been invited to attend, but mm -hmm. he declined. Oh. Yeah. But Dolly went. Dolly was there. Okay. Tyler's brand new Secretary of State was also aboard, Thomas Gilmer. Gilmer had previously been the governor of Virginia, like Tyler, so he knew how to run things. And he was a big ally in the fight to annex Texas. He had just been named Secretary of the Navy 10 days earlier. Oh, my goodness. 
Another big wig on board was a man named Virgil Maxey, who was almost chosen as Navy secretary. He'd worked in the Treasury Department. He was an ambassador to Belgium. And one other interesting thing about Maxey that I ran across, he apparently comes up in a lot of discussions of same-sex relationships in the early 19th century. Oh, interesting. Because of his connection with a man named William Blanding. Huh. There's a letter from Maxey to Blanding where he says that he misses sharing a bed with him. Mm. And he writes, Sometimes I think I have got hold of your doodle, when in reality I have hold of the bedpost. Okay. <laughs> um, I couldn't not share your that. Your doodle. First of all. I've never heard it called that, and, first of all. <laughs> and what a doodle. If, I mean, bedpost. <laughs> that is quite a doodle. Yeah, I think this reminds me of like the lesser known stanza of You Are My Sunshine. Oh, what's the lesser like, known? When I awoke, dear, I was mistaken. Oh, uh, well, that part, yes. Yeah. I, that stanza makes me sad, though, and I don't I don't relate it to finding a doodle in a bedpost well, instead of a doodle. You'll be less sad when you think of that doodle. <laughs> it um, does give me a different view of things. One more thing about this letter before we get back to the Princeton. Mm-hmm. And this is where we earn our explicit label. So please tell your parents to cover their ears. Okay. Instead and of- And your children. Uh, sure, yeah. Your children and your parents. Sure. you got to protect the children, too. <laughs> Won't someone think of the children? <laughs> Instead of best wishes or warmest regards or your humble and obedient servant, Maxie signed his letter, your cunt humble. Oh. Yeah. That's interesting. Did you look up in your Oxford English Dictionary to see if cunt had a different meaning back then? It had the same meaning back then. Oh, really? It did. Okay. I have so many questions. This yeah, re- that's interesting. It really, it makes me want to bring letter writing back. <laughs> and if you join our Patreon, you'll get a handwritten letter by me. And yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to sign that, but <laughs> it's kind of sweet in a way. Yeah. And his hand letters, I will have you know, are like specifically tea stained for you. So we have like trays in our kitchen with tea water that he then stains the paper with. So it has a nice smell and it also looks like it's actually aged with tea stains. So he takes great care in the paper that he writes the personal letters on. So you alone will bring letter writing back. (laughs) (laughs) The pleasure cruise was going great. Uh, It was February, but not too cold. Great pleasure cruising weather. (laughs) Nice breeze on your doodle. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. All right. So Robert Stockton did three demonstrations of the Peacemaker for the crowd, and it was truly impressive. The cannonballs apparently bounced a dozen or so times on the frozen water before they sank. I don't know how a 200-pound cannonball bounces off of ice, but it it sounds like a pretty cool sight. That's some rock skipping. Yeah. Below deck, after the demonstrations, John Tyler made a toast to the three big guns, the Peacemaker, the Oregon, and Captain Stockton. Then they were approaching Mount Vernon. Secretary of the Navy Thomas Gilmer suggested that they fire the peacemaker one more time as a salute to George Washington. Is this the one time that destroys everything? You'll see. Oh, I'm nervous now. Stockton agreed. Oh, that's a George Washington salute, too. That's such a shame. The irony is, yeah. The cannon was primed and several members of the party went on deck to witness the tribute to Washington as they passed his home. Stockton took his place behind the cannon and pulled the firing lanyard that ignited the fuse, and the cannon exploded. Oh, God. The behemoth came apart with giant pieces of hot wrought iron shooting out onto the crowd. 
So, oh my gosh. So just a bunch of sh- shrapnel on the crowd, on the ship, the yeah. crowd on the ship. Okay. Yeah. Smoke covered the deck oh and God. the survivors up there, they couldn't see what happened until it started to clear. It's like combat. Yeah. New Jersey Congressman George Sykes was up there. He heard shouting after the explosion. And when the smoke cleared, he was astonished to find that every man between me and the gun was lying prostrate on the deck and about 30 or 40 men lying in heaps indiscriminately and promiscuously around the gun, either killed, wounded, or knocked down and stunned by the concussion. That sounds like a story my grandfather used to tell about when he was in the um, infantry in World Mm. War II. He, He was standing in a field surrounded by men, and then he heard a sound like Mm -hmm. a dropping bomb and there was an explosion and then again when the smoke cleared he was the only one standing wow everyone else was killed around him yeah um which you know survival in this situation just sounds like pure damn luck yeah george sykes said he saw three bodies blackened by the smoke of the powder and distorted by the agonies of death it's awful those bodies belong to the brand new secretary of the navy thomas gilmer the Secretary of State, Abel Upshur, mm-hmm. and Senator David Gardner. All dead. Yeah. Upshur and Gilmer probably died instantly. Their bodies were pretty much intact, except for some bleeding from the ears. Ooh. Another passenger who died was Virgil Maxey, that political bigwig from the Doodle Letter. Mm-hmm. A captain in the Navy also died, Beverly Kennan, the head of the Bureau of Construction and Repair. His chest was caved in, and he probably died of suffocation. Oh, God. Their bodies were quickly covered with an American flag that had just been flying on the ship before. Mm. Three other people died. Two gunners and John Tyler's enslaved body servant, probably named Armistead, but maybe named Henry. The man who attended Tyler so closely and we're not even sure of his name. Because his history was erased. Yeah. A dozen or more other people were injured. When the peacemaker exploded, John Tyler was still below deck. He was about to go up, but he stopped to listen to his son-in-law sing a song. And he was probably watching Julia Tyler flirt with someone her own age, (laughs) Captain Stockton's son. Oh, wow. Yeah. So Julia was under the belly of the ship as well. (laughs) Yeah, she was down there. At first, when the explosion happened, nobody below deck knew that anything was wrong. They thought it was just the cannon being fired. Oh, they didn't realize. How did they not feel an explosion like that down there? I I guess it was loud and insulated. Wouldn't it have torn apart the floorboards? I don't, I, I I don't, don't think it, it did. Oh, I wow. think it just blew out parts of the cannon onto the ship. Okay. But then the screaming started and the smoke started pouring in. Oh, no. Julia Tyler tried to fight her way to the upper deck, screaming that she wanted to go to her father. Someone stopped her and told her, my dear child, you can do no good. Your father is in heaven. Oh, shit. Then she fainted. So her father was up on the deck. David Gardner, yeah. David Gardner. He was one of the people killed. Okay. The next thing she knew, she was being carried across a plank to a rescue boat by Tyler. Oh. She started thrashing so violently that she said she almost knocked us both off the gangplank. I did not know at the time that it was the president whose life I almost consigned to the water. (laughs) Anyone else, it would have been fine. (laughs) Soon she would stop struggling with Tyler for good. Oh, did that seal the deal with their marriage? We'll, we'll get back to them in a little bit. But first, I want to okay. talk about the man who fired the cannon. Okay. All these people standing around the cannon died, but the man who fired it, Captain Stockton, he came out pretty unscathed. 
but his whiskers were singed off and there was a piece of shrapnel that went through one of his legs. When he was told what happened, he cried, Would to God that I had alone been slain and all my friends been saved. Once his wounds were soaked, he returned to the deck and acted Captain Lee in making sure that the injured were taken care of. And John Tyler wanted to make sure that Captain Stockton was taken care of. Hmm. The very next day, Tyler wrote to Congress saying, In some relief to the public sorrow, which must necessarily accompany this most painful event, it affords me much satisfaction to say that it was produced by no carelessness or inattention on the part of the officers and crew of the Princeton. But it must be set down as one of those casualties which, to a greater or less degree, attend upon every service and which are invariably incident to the temporal affairs of mankind. So basically saying it's not Stockton's fault either. Yeah, he's saying shit happens. Yeah. Just one of those things. Nothing to see here. Let's just keep on building up the Navy, guys. Yeah, so Stockton took no responsibility for his cutting corners. He never did. A naval board investigated the accident, and it found that he was not at fault. But that wasn't enough for Stockton. He wanted to be cleared by experts. He sounds so self-involved, this guy. Yeah. He pushed for the Franklin Institute of Philadelphia to investigate and have their top scientists clear his name. That idea backfired much like the peacemaker. (sighs) The Franklin Institute put together a panel of experts in engineering, ballistics, and metallurgy. They found that the peacemaker was doomed from the start. Oh my gosh. It was so big that tools didn't exist to properly forge it. And it didn't have the shrunk-on bands that Erickson had put on the Oregon. Right. They didn't go so far as blaming Stockton, but they made it clear that the use of wrought iron guns of large caliber made upon the same plan as the gun now under examination ought to be abandoned. Yeah, so the investigation did not clear his name. They didn't say you're a murderer, but they didn't clear his name. Right. Like he was hoping. Exactly. Then the House Committee on Naval Affairs did their own investigation, and though they didn't exactly blame Stockton either, they did say it was reckless to permit an officer unconnected with the construction or ordnance department to proceed with so little restraint in the building and arming of a ship of war. Yeah, so they're not saying it's directly his fault, but they kind of are. I mean, they're blaming him. Yeah, they they changed the rules, basically, so that you can't just let some rich dude put his pet cannon on a ship anymore. Right. At least not without getting a lot of paper signs. It sounds like like he's been in a lot of bribery. It sounds like he's been called reckless and that there were mistakes, clear and obvious mistakes Definitely. Um, so it is his fault. Yeah, and it kind of it kind of clung to him like a stain, but he refused to accept any responsibility for the tragedy, and he still had friends in high places. I know I like to diagnose people, you know, without any kind of degree <laughs> on this show, but, I, I mean, he sounds like a self-involved narcissist and possible sociopath. Yeah, definitely narcissism. I mean, he did, after the accident, it's not like he ran away. He did try to help. He did wish that he had died, or at least he said that instead of the others. He did But then some he things. had some troubles taking any kind of accountability. This is true. And showed no remorse for any of his actions. Yeah. And he went on to command the Princeton a few years later in the Mexican-American War. There were no peacemaker-sized cannons on it, though. No, they, that's good. They'd learned that much, at least. Speaking of the Mexican-American War, that's kind of a spoiler for how things went on the Texas front. Okay. But I want to talk about how the tragedy on the Princeton affected that quest for Texas. Okay. It really screwed it up. I'm sure. For one. (laughs) They thought, this Navy's inept. (laughs) Yes, they invited the Mexican ambassador on board to show him how powerful and effective the Navy was. And instead, they proved that we don't have our shit together. Right. 
Was he one of the, he he survived? He survived. Okay. Yeah, he survived to tell the tale of whoa, these guys are out of. We touch. don't have to worry about their navy right now. <laughs> it hurt the reputation of the navy, and it probably slowed down the modernization by fifteen years. Wow! But the biggest loss in the quest for Texas, for sure, was Upshur. Abel Upshur had all the votes lined up for the treaty, ready to go. He'd worked his butt off to downplay the pro-slavery feelings within himself. He'd made it so that people would think that annexing Texas was not just some ploy to spread slavery. But now he was gone. Mm. Tyler would need a new Secretary of State, his fourth. And because Tyler was surrounded by tragic accidents, he accidentally ended up with maybe the worst man for the job. Oh my gosh. Our old friend. Who? John C. Calhoun. Oh, the scary guy? Yes. I can't remember the background of his story, but I do remember his face because it haunts my dreams. Yes. Once you see a picture of John C. Calhoun, you, you will never be the same again. You don't unsee that. No. We talked about him in our Andrew Jackson slut shaming episode, but John C. Calhoun is like some kind of golem who keeps popping up in other people's biographies to promote slavery. Ugh. He just keeps showing up. He was vice president to two presidents. John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson. Oh, and he was the Crip Keeper. Yeah, he was a senator. 20 years earlier, he was James Monroe's Secretary of State. And the Crip Keeper. He was passed around like a hot potato if hot potatoes look like Doc Brown had a baby with Frankenstein's monster. Oh, gross. And the Crip Keeper. And the Crip Keeper. Tyler did not want Calhoun to be his Secretary of State. Then, but how did that happen then? <sighs> I still don't quite understand, but apparently one of Tyler's good buddies in the house decided that Tyler should nominate Calhoun, and he told the senator friend that. And that senator friend, thinking it was coming straight from Tyler himself, told Calhoun, hey, you're going to be President Tyler's choice to be the next Secretary of State. <laughs> Tyler was pissed when he found out, because That's even though... okay. No, even though they were both states' rights-loving Southerners, John C. Calhoun was psychotically ready to watch the world burn just to preserve and expand slavery. As outspoken as Abel Upshur was about how wonderful slavery was, Calhoun was worse, calling it a positive good. Ugh, God. He's just, he's a monster. Yeah. Tyler's whole idea of playing up the good parts of annexing Texas, how spreading out slavery would actually diffuse it somehow, that <laughs> argument does not work when you put Calhoun on it. Tyler knew the North would oppose anything Calhoun was in charge of because that man didn't get out of bed unless he could spread slavery. Ugh. So he had that reputation, and that's yeah. what hurt. Okay. But Tyler didn't want to offend Calhoun or his reckless friend or the entire South, so he went ahead and nominated him to be his Secretary of State. Oh, my gosh. There's got to be more tactful ways to handle these problems. Oh, my God. Calhoun's involvement slowed down things by about a year, and the Senate did not approve the treaty by the two-thirds vote necessary. But somehow, through some sketchy legislative maneuvers to turn it into a joint resolution bill requiring only a majority of both the House and the Senate, Congress finally approved the annexation of Texas in Tyler's final days as president. Gosh. He signed the resolution, and it was expected that he would ceremoniously give the pen that he used to Calhoun, because I guess that's what you do. Mm -hmm. But instead, he gave it to his bride, Julia Gardner Tyler. Oh, wow. Yes. It's different. The explosion of the peacemaker may have screwed up his plans for Texas, but it sealed the deal with Julia. Mm -hmm. Tyler had Julia and her sister Margaret taken to the White House to recover after the explosion. Julia was understandably distraught, and she had frequent dreams of her father in the next few weeks. She saw him so clearly at her bedside that she would sigh away the night and watching for him. Mm -hmm. 
That's called trauma. Yeah. After that, she came around to the idea of marrying Tyler. She said she felt differently about the president and that he seemed to fill the place to be more agreeable in every way than any younger man ever was or could be. Biographer Robert Seeger picked up that that's more than a little Freudian. But what are you going to do? Oh, boy. Sometimes a cannon is just a cannon. <laughs> Sometimes a doodle is just a cannon. <laughs> they got married four months later in New York in secret. They booked a hotel called Howard's Hotel. Oh. Yeah. Your name comes up in the most interesting ways, <laughs> I have to say. And they didn't want anyone to know they were there, so they had the owner lock his servants in for the night so they couldn't spread the word that Tyler was in town. Oh, gosh. It was so secret that Tyler didn't even tell most of his kids. Of his eight kids, the only one at the wedding was John Jr. Why, why just him? I, I don't know. I don't know. It's got to be awkward, too, to see the object of your love poems marry your dad. That is very awkward. I'm, I'm disturbed by, by Tyler's decision to do that, too. Yeah. Just like, after I'm going to have him watch this happen. <laughs> <laughs> I think he wanted so, to be there. I think they were all okay. friendly. And yeah. All righty. You know, maybe, maybe it was like a Hamilton situation. And he's like, at least I have her eyes in my life. <laughs> God, it's so very sad. Just after the wedding, the wedding party rode a ferry around the harbor where Navy battleships saluted them with cannon fire. Jeez. One of the ships was the Princeton. That seems like a bad idea. Yeah, their marriage was saluted by cannon fire from the same boat that brought them together by killing the bride's father. So maybe, was that a purposeful choice? Like, here's what brought us together? Or in memorum? In mem memoriam? Memoriam? I don't think so. I think they just didn't have any rice. <laughs> well, hopefully this didn't kill any birds. Um, uh, or, any yeah. more, or any more people. No, nobody died from that. Okay. But speaking of romance and trauma... Do you know who cut their wedding cake for them? Mm, romance and trauma. Maybe that wasn't the best lead up, but it was John C. Calhoun. I was going to guess that. <sighs> you didn't give me a chance. I'm sorry. I didn't think you would guess that. <laughs> I mean, I that was the only person that, you know, I was thinking would be shocking to, yeah. to cut the cake. Yeah, because nothing says romance like a hairy neck boogeyman with a big old knife <laughs> slicing into your wedding cake and Ew. pushing a little piece of it into your mouth. Ew. Nom, nom, nom. Ew. That's gross. I don't I don't know if that's exactly how it happened, but yeah. That reminds me of the video of when you fed me cake. Oh my god. <laughs> the funniest video ever. I don't know what you were thinking. I read that when you're doing certain things in your wedding, you should do Where them slowly. Where did you read that? On some like wedding etiquette, how to pose for <laughs> pictures thing. It said you should do things slowly so that the photographers have a chance to capture every moment. But they didn't talk about what if the videographer is also there. Yeah, the videographer captured me looking like a freaking serial killer. <laughs> feeding me. Feeding you and yeah, not blinking. And yeah, it's very creepy. And maybe we'll find a way to put that up on Patreon. Yeah, that's that was a creepy moment. To scare everyone. Yeah. Um. When Tyler's daughters found out about the wedding, they were not happy. Mm. His oldest daughter was five years older than Julia. Wow. Well, no wonder yeah. she wasn't happy about it. Some of them never got along with her, mm -hmm. but she didn't really mind. No, she just cared about herself, it seems. She was no longer just the Rose of Long Island. Now she was the Lady Presidentress. Jeez. <laughs> she hired a publicist to talk her up in the press, and she brought some of the European royal court she loved so much to the White House. Every Saturday, she would have a reception where visitors were allowed to greet her. She sat on a raised platform with a beaded headdress resembling a crown, and she had six to 12 young women, maids of honor or ladies-in-waiting, sitting beside her and behind her, all dressed identically in white. 
That is so creepy. It reminds me of our daughter playing dress up I and guess, pretending yeah. to be a queen. I mean, yeah, that's yeah, what she was it's doing. Just, it's like she's playing dress up. It makes me think of like a, a an eighties Robert Palmer video with like the girls dancing in the background <laughs> with like the lipstick. And, yeah, and, yeah, <laughs> like little mini skirts and, <laughs> and then ties. Yes. She eventually had this entourage around her at every party, and she knew how to throw a party. Their farewell ball at the White House was legendary. 2,000 people were invited. 3,000 people showed up. (laughs) 3,000 people. People were packed as thick as sheep in a pen. Everybody who was anybody was there to enjoy the Marine Band, playing for the dancers, the fancy dresses, the exquisite food and the drinks. This was at the White House? This was their farewell ball at the White House when John Tyler um, didn't really run for re-election. He was on his way out and they threw one last big party. I see. Julia's sister Margaret said wine and champagne flowed like water. Eight dozen bottles of champagne were drunk with wine by the barrels. And the lights, the cost for candles that night was $350, which is about $12,000 today. Oh, just for candles. Yeah. At the end of the night, President Tyler reportedly remarked, yes, they cannot say now that I am a president without a party. Oh my gosh. It just seems like his legacy is so sad. Yeah. At a scene like this, James Madison would have just looked miserable and said he wanted to go to bed. (laughs) But not John Tyler. He looked younger and happier than ever. He had Texas and he was about to retire and make an army of babies with his young bride. Oh, how many kids did they have? (laughs) They had seven children. It's a lot. Yeah. A lot of kids. Yeah. They retired to his home, Sherwood Forest, which he named after Robin Hood because he felt like he'd been outlawed from his party. Oh my gosh. Um, These people are just so self-involved. Yeah. Talk about, like, I'm the victim. (laughs) A little bit. (laughs) I have $12,000 for candles, but I'm the victim. And I have 15 (laughs) children. (laughs) I can't even imagine that. That's, yeah. There's such a thing as too much of a good thing. Oh, my God. Two children is a lot. (laughs) Two has been challenging. so many. So many children. But they had all this extra. Yeah, I guess they had a lot of enslaved people to raise their children. Yeah. After the presidency, John Tyler didn't quite stay out of politics. 16 years after leaving the presidency, he was elected to the House of Representatives. But not the United States House of Representatives. The Confederacy's House of Representatives. Oh, gross. He sided with the Confederacy in the Civil War. He died before he could take office, and he died a traitor to the United States, buried under the Confederate flag. Wow. Yeah. Talk about a way to go. It's just... Yeah, not great. No, that's, um, yeah, he's kind of a disappointing human being. A bit. (sighs) Just a bit. But you can't talk about John Tyler without bringing up this fact. So John Tyler, who was born in 1790, when George Washington was president, has a grandson who is still alive today. What? Yeah, up until September of this year, he had two grandsons alive. Oh my gosh. How old is his grandson? He's 91 years old. Oh, wow. So when John was 63 and Julia was 33, they had their fifth child, Mm -hmm. John's 13th child total. (laughs) And that man, Lion Tyler, he, like his father, had two marriages, three children with his first wife, and then three more with his second wife. He had Harrison Ruffin Tyler when he was 75 years old, and his wife was 39. Wow. So Harrison Tyler is 91 today. He lives in a nursing home in Virginia. Oh, my gosh. And the family still lives at Sherwood Forest. 
oh, wow, I wonder how he's doing right now in the nursing home he's, with COVID going on. He's not doing well. Um, um, he's got memory issues, and yeah, he's, he's, not, he's not doing well. Oh, did he do anything in his lifespan that would be relevant to this podcast? Uh, I mean, he was sort of like the, the caretaker and gave tours and, and kept up Sherwood Forest. Okay, yeah. interesting. And now his son is doing that. Oh, wow. What does um, Sherwood Forest look like? Because it's the name of a plantation, right? Yeah, it's a it's a really long wooden house. At one point, I think it was the longest wooden house in the country. Because he kept like the building longest? onto it. Yeah, <laughs> he like, kept on building onto it in one direction. <laughs> that's that's what he did. <laughs> yeah, that's very. This man was very interesting in his decision making. Yeah, even in his decision to marry or desire Julia, she just seemed very self involved. It doesn't. You didn't talk about her intellect or her character really no, other than the fact that she really was great yeah i mean she just seemed very superficial she was yet very... he wanted her because of her beauty yeah it sounds definitely. like and it it just seems like he his decision making in general just seemed very superficial very one note yeah and, and she was always out of touch at one point i think i don't know if one of their enslaved people escaped or was sold to another family and mm-hmm. then eventually was freed and he came back to visit. Wow. Who and does that? I think he wanted to see maybe some of his family or something oh, like that. But Julia it. thought that he was there to apologize. Oh, wow. Yeah. That is, that's more than out of touch. That's just like, it continues the abuse. You know, the victim yeah. comes back to to see their family who's probably still enslaved. And, um, oh, are you here to say I'm sorry yeah. for being enslaved here? God. It's bizarre to think that there are people alive today whose grandparents had slaves. Yeah. And that there's someone alive today who might not be here if it weren't for that explosion aboard the USS Princeton. Mm-hmm. That butterfly effect yeah. in lots of ways, politically and familially. Yes. That's the story of the peacemaker and the cradle robber. <laughs> the cradle robber. That was really good. Thank you. So that is a wrap on season two of Plotting Through the Presidents. Congratulations to Woo! you, my love. <laughs> I, I wasn't sure we'd be able to pull it off in this pandemic, uh, but somehow we made it work. And I want to thank you, Jess, for taking on so much of our daily lives and our family while I was writing and editing. Oh, well, I did it with, you know, searing at you <laughs> from the corners of yeah. my eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I, I always laid on the guilt, too, but I know that you are working so hard on this and I am very proud well, of thank you. you. I just show up to the mic, folks. I don't do anything else regarding the podcast. So all of the hard work, the editing, the writing goes to Howard. Aww. I'm hoping to get more involved in the Patreon. That'd be you know, good. Yeah, that would be really good. But other th- other than that, I'm just here to, to blabber. You're just a pretty mouth. <laughs> with flowers in my bosom. Mm. If this is your first time plotting with us, please check back on some of our earlier episodes because there's something for everyone. If you like weird paranormal presidential stories, if you're curious why Alexander Hamilton hated John Adams so much, if you want to know more about the enslaved people that were raised alongside Thomas Jefferson and his siblings to learn their master's preferences from a young age, check out the earthquake drowning of Elizabeth Jefferson. Uh, you'll find everything at plodpod.com. We are going to be back sometime in the spring. And you can keep up with us on Facebook. Reach out. And please consider joining our Patreon family, 
where we're going to be releasing a bonus podcast with our six-year-old daughter. Yes. And lots of extra cut scenes and more from the podcast. Uh, oh, shout out. Yes. I was going to ask you. We're shouting out, right? Yes. Because... Thank you to our new patrons, Mary. Yes. Thank you so much, so Mary. excited to have you. And Britt, who won our Totally Not Haunted George Washington doll giveaway earlier a, this season. I really love that in a way that Haunted George Washington doll is staying within the family. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like, it's not too far away. It's with Britt. <laughs> yes, Britt, I hope that he's treating you well and not slowly draining your soul. <laughs> or, like, showing up in different areas of your house. Like Elf on the Shelf. Oh, my God. <laughs> like cool Elf on a be? Shelf or, you know, like George Annabelle. And the Gorge. <laughs> George and the Gorge or the doll Annabelle. Oh, my God. Uh, and a big thank you to Platinum Plotter Kate, who I hope finds our American history story is half as delightful as she finds the European royal families and Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> In the meantime, we truly appreciate whatever you can do to help us grow and reach more like-minded lovers of irreverent history. So please tell your friends, acquaintances, your frenemies, your cellmates. <laughs> yes, please share your love. We really do depend on it and we appreciate it and we feel very lucky. Absolutely. Until next time, have a wonderful holiday season. Stay safe and thank you for plotting. Thank you so much for plotting. Take care. See you in the spring. That is quite a doodle.